Hello and welcome to Vax Talk, the podcast all about vaccines. My name is Karen Ernst and I am the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Nathan Boonstra. I'm a general pediatrician at Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. This is our special uh, National Infant Immunization Week episode. I will call it our NIIW episode from now on so that I can, you know, not expend too much energy saying what this is about. I'm very excited for today's episode because we are talking to two moms. We are talking to one mom named Genevieve Holmes, and she is going to talk about her um, baby's or her son, her son is now a teenager, but when he was a, a toddler, he had rotavirus. And then we're also going to be talking to Emily Stevenson and her baby's uh, struggle and battle with pertussis. So that will be fun. But the first half, um, it is Nathan and I, and we're going to start <laughs> with our, yeah, and we're going to start does. with our feature um, around the web. So I hear you have something interesting, Nathan, that you I found do. on the web. Well, I, I have a certain duty... You know, I go under the, the handle of Peds Geek MD for a reason, and that's because I like to talk about Star Wars and Star Trek and such as much as I like to talk about pediatric issues, including vaccinations. So I feel I would be remiss if I did not kind of review the William Shatner debacle that went down in the last couple of weeks. So, yeah, so this, and it's complicated. I'm not going to be able to do all the aspects of this justice. Uh, but I can try to sum it up a little bit and then I'm going to point to a good article or two, uh, for people who want to read a little bit more on it. So it started, I've followed William Shatner for years, uh, and his Twitter, uh, personality sometimes leaves a little bit to be desired. And I have noticed in the past a tendency for him not to, well, for him to double down on issues that he's not necessarily understanding all the facts on. Um, but I've enjoyed that he has at least given lip service to polio eradication. He's supported March of Dimes and whatnot. Um, in this particular situation, uh, I, I believe it was a couple of weeks ago, it was at the beginning of April, uh, which is traditionally called um, Autism Awareness Month. Uh, and a lot of people don't understand the issues that go along with saying autism awareness in ter- in ter- instead of, say, autism support and whatnot. There's a lot to be said about that, and in particular, the involvement of Autism Speaks. Uh, so William Shatner uh, tweeted out this uh, image, which is basically Autism Speaks, uh, their blue puzzle piece and said something about lighting it up blue and autism awareness. Not really understanding the well-deserved criticism that Autism Speaks and Autism Awareness Month gets from the autism community. And I don't really, as I said, have the time to be able to go into all of that, but I would recommend reading uh, a, a blog post by a friend of ours, Matt Carey, from Left Brain, Right Brain, uh, and he, he titled it, An Open Letter to William Shatner on Autism Awareness. So you can Google that or go to his site, uh, read a bit more. Sufficient to say that uh, this is a fairly, th- this is not without controversy to tweet this, and it displays a lack of understanding of the, the criticisms of Autism Speaks uh, and, and this month. Um, so a lot of people tried to help him understand that. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, with varying levels of how, you know, being Twitter, there's varying levels of, of, of civility, which right. is fine. Uh, and when you're tweeting at a celebrity... Yeah, I did. I saw a lot of people saying, I can't believe I'm arguing with William Shatner. I know. So I went and I looked, and I was like, oh, I'm just going to back slowly away from this. All kinds of people I know were, like, getting quoted by William Shatner. Uh, And so people would try to help him understand these very significant issues about how Autism Speaks doesn't really uh, provide a lot of support uh, how they don't have autistic individuals uh, in their leadership, about how their money is used, about why it's generally not, you know, uh, why a lot of people disapprove of the organization in the autism community. Um, Shatner is not really willing to uh, be educated on this topic, to put it lightly. Uh, so, and he would continue to take very um respectable, like very important names in the autism community. Uh, Ari Naaman uh, from Autism Self-Advocacy Network. 
um, Steve Silverman, who wrote Neurotribes, like these fantastic individuals, uh, science writers like Emily Willingham, he would just quote them and then kind of find some reason to just dismiss them or even shame them in his tweets. And, and people would continue to try to have this dialogue with him, point out the significant problems, and then enter uh, Dr. David Gorski, uh, who is one of the biggest names in terms of fighting pseudoscience and particularly fighting the anti-vaccine movement uh, in terms of blogging and, and, and just standing up for science. He points out some very significant um, pieces of information for Mr. Shatner. Mr. Shatner then looks, takes it upon himself to Google uh, Dr. Gorski and finds uh, site after site of hit pieces on Dr. Gorski, which we all know are out there because anti-vaxxers, when they find somebody who is actually making an impact, write hit pieces and spread them on their networks of sites, of alternative medicine sites and, and uh, anti-vaccine sites and anti-science sites and conspiracy theory sites. And Mr. Shatner shows no understanding of how the internet gets bad information spread quickly mm -hmm. on it tweets them out you know quotes quotes uh quotes the tweet from gorski and says oh well i found all this about you and posts a bunch of stuff to places like natural news and whatnot and then it kind of went from there <laughs> it was a really ugly mess it was like watching the enterprise explode the first time <laughs> that it happened in the movie it was disheartening i was in, i felt in the same uh, dr gorski wrote about it about how watching a childhood hero like this kind of spiral down like this it's really difficult to watch and that's true and this ties in a lot with what we talk about in terms of immunizations and, and the anti-vaccine movement because it shows um how it shows what we're up against right how somebody can go on the internet and sure mr shatner's not the first person in his age group or any age group who doesn't really understand how the internet works but to go on there and uncritically repost information misinformation about an individual uh, or you know about other issues uh, uh, science about vaccinations or anything like that this can happen to uh, a celebrity they can get sucked right in um, so there's a good piece on this, uh, and I would point out, you know, there's a lot of, it kind of got mischaracterized. A lot of people then were assuming that because he was tweeting them that he was anti-vaccine. I genuinely don't think that Mr. Shatner is anti-vaccine really in any no. significant way. Uh, I do think that he is not judicious about what he reads on the internet uh, and certainly does not wield the, his, his, the, his, the power of his, of his online presence with any level of responsibility there. And I think that's what's a shame. But let me pull up this article. So there, there's one, there were a lot written, and I, I would love to name them all. I don't have them all pulled up. But the one that I think kind of speaks the most to how this affects us as science and vaccine advocates is called William Shatner's tweets are a classic case of misinformation spread. Uh, this is in Slate. It's by Alan Levinovitz, and it, you know, he talks about it was frustrating to watch, but also instructive. So if you kind of want a little glimpse of how the anti-vaccine movement and the anti-science movement can manipulate people, read that. It's not too long, and you can get a, big, a, a quick summary of... Um, of, uh, of the events that have gone down and continue to go down. He keeps tweeting about it. He yeah. won't stop. Oh, no. I haven't looked lately. Okay. I don't, I don't want to look. Yeah, don't, <laughs> I'm just going to believe look. you. I'm just I'm too busy to look. Um, and you know, the, the heart, it's so disheartening when people who really don't know what they're talking about aren't listening to people who do right. know what they're talking about. You know, when you have, when you have Ari Naiman like who paying attention to you yeah i mean you how much can you learn from that man he's amazing so yeah. um it's it's disheartening um i i it's it, it, voices for vaccines have experienced the same kind of thing i mean you can google voices mm -hmm. for vaccines oh, and yeah. you'll see the the hit network uh on on the group too which is another example of of how these kinds of things go down yeah, it's always fun seeing your face pop up on Age of Autism. So, um, yeah. <laughs> look, at my face. So far, not a big enough fish yeah. myself, but we, maybe, you know, we, when this when this podcast hits the podcast. big time. There you go. Yeah. I can expect the right same Right about the thing. podcast, Age of Autism. You can find yep. Nathan's 
pictures all over them. I want my 2.5 million followers. Um, so my around the web is vastly different from yours. I have another hashtag. Last time I had it, the hashtag, um, but I vaccinate. This mm-hmm. time I have a hashtag, I vax to protect with a number two, like Prince is tweeting it. Okay. Um, <laughs> and people. <laughs> but he's not people, I'm just so you know. Cool <laughs> and people are. Uh, tweeting out pictures of their families or their babies or you know whoever they're vaccinating to protect um and instagramming and using that hashtag and it's kind of a a nice balm against the you know the people in the world who are speaking beyond their personal experience Mm -hmm. um and so uh that's i mean that's my around the web it's it's not as involved as yours but it's pretty exciting it does help us however pivot again Mm-hmm. To the reason why we're here, because IVAX to protect, like yes. Prince number two, yes. is part of our recognition of National Infant Immunization Week (NIIW), and I just want to give a couple of facts, a little history of NIIW, so people know what it's about. Um, NIIW has been recognized since 1994. It's always the last week of April, and it coincides with World Immunization Week. So if you're not in the United States, where you know still about you um and uh it started because um there were measles outbreaks happening in the early to mid 90s um which i barely remember um <laughs> yeah i, I'm, I wasn't I'm aware of it young. at the time yeah <clears throat> I, w- I wasn't either the only thing i know is that i got my second mmr dose during that um and uh I, I didn't know why. And the mo- my mom was like, oh, really, too? And I was like, oh, that hurt. So yeah. that's, the on- that's the only memory I have of the measles outbreaks in the mid early mid-90s. Yeah, um, and there were Yeah, okay. And there were declining immunization rates at that time, too. Um, you know, a little bit about hesitancy, a little bit about um, there was not as much, um, not as much, I guess, uh, availability or accessibility as there is now. Right. That, that vaccines are really accessible now. Yeah. A lot of the outbreaks strides. prior to, I mean, this is pre-Wakefield, so a, a great amount of, of, of problems with outbreaks were related to access uh, and related to poverty and related to um, just people not being immunized because they refused it, not being not immunized because they refused it, but not being immunized because they couldn't afford it, they didn't get to, they didn't have the access uh, to get immunized. Right. So, um, you know, now we have vaccines for children, which provides um, free vaccines for children who don't have insurance or means to pay for vaccines. And um, vaccines are pretty much available everywhere. Uh, so it's it's a lot easier to get vaccinated, although we do still have pockets of accessibility issues. That's mm-hmm. really not the biggest encumbrance for immunization rates. Sure. So um, that's why, you know, tweeting out or Instagramming your pictures and using the hashtag IVAX to protect is really a strong message because now it's really about, you know, having a strong community showing how important vaccines are for you and, and starting that conversation. And I'll mention, while, as long as I can, since we're talking about Infant Immunization Week, this week the CDC is doing a blogathon, and my blog is a part of it. Uh, so you can check that out on my blog at uh, pedsgeekmd.com. Uh, also go to the CDC website and look for the rest of the blogs on the blogathon. Right, and Voices for Vaccines is, isn't an anchor blog, but we are going, or we are publishing a blog th- this week. Um, and I know a lot of other very small bloggers are looking to publish blogs and big bloggers too. So it's it's an exciting blogathon. Really interesting stories will be out there. And I think um, if you could go to the CDC blogathon page, just Google CDC NIIW blogathon, and you can find some of the people who are blogging. Um, then you are uh, that you know share those. And um, again, another good way to start a conversation. Um, So I was hoping, since we're going to have our guests on in just a minute, that we could go over some of the diseases that we vaccinate against in the first two years of life and just kind of talk about them. Of course, I have copious notes. I've always got statistics for us, right? Yes. Okay, so... Thank goodness one of us does. What's... (laughs) Well, you have a (laughs) medical degree, so... (laughs) Um, In the first two years of life, 
We can protect children against hepatitis B, rotavirus, diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, haemophilus influenza B, pneumococcal disease, polio, influenza, measles, mumps, rubella, and hepatitis A, which is, I think, amazing mm-hmm. that we can provide protection against all of those diseases. It's a good thing, and it's wonderful to celebrate. And here's a little bit about some of those diseases, about what they were like before we had vaccines. Before we had vaccines, we saw between 13,000 and 20,000 cases of polio. We saw between 3 and 4 million cases of measles each year. We saw, um, this one's a little complicated, uh, for Haemophilus influenza B, Mm -hmm. we saw 20,000 cases of invasive Haemophilus influenza B each year. And um, up to 8,000 of of those cases were invasive cases, or life-threatening invasive cases. So uh, that means that one out of 200 children under the age of five got Haemophilus influenza B disease, and it would kill 600 children each year. And I did not realize that that disease was that deadly. Um, oh, because yeah. that's not that's not one we talk about much. Um, that's the one that causes it's something that I never had to see uh, as uh, when I became a physician as a resident. Um, but we would learn a lot about, which would be uh, epiglottitis, so right. an infection, uh, a life-threatening infection uh, of the epiglottis that could close off the airway and kill uh, without significant medical intervention. And so it was always. Um, um, one of the things you never wanted to miss, and so, and it would be impressed upon us, you know, even in the age of vaccinations, know about epiglottitis. This can kill. You don't want to miss this. Right. Exactly. So, um, that's a scary disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, pertussis. Now, people are always talking about. You know, one of the tropes I hear from the anti-vaccine movement is that the pertussis vaccine doesn't work. There's no point in vaccinating against it because look at all these cases of pertussis. But before the vaccine, there were 150,000 to 260,000 cases of pertussis each year and 9,000 deaths from pertussis each year. Wow. And that's certainly not the level we are seeing today. No. Um, so I would say that the pertussis vaccine does do a lot of good. Uh, that's my opinion on that yeah um, and you know i kind of wish maybe we sh- maybe we'll, we'll address this in a future episode but uh one of my around the webs could have been today mentioning the fact that a new study looked at prenatal administration right. of tdap and it's extremely effective at preventing uh severe whooping cough in those babies who are too young to be immunized because you can't get your first dose until two months right. so it's some of the best evidence that we have that it really does work to protect that most vulnerable population Absolutely. And then the last disease I just want to talk about was rubella. So rubella um, is actually usually mild unless you are pregnant. And then it can cause in your um, baby um, congenital rubella syndrome, which um, can cause all sorts of congenital birth defects, um, including blindness, deafness, cognitive disabilities. So before the vaccine, there were 20,000 cases of congenital rubella syndrome each year. Um, There were also 2,000 neonatal neonatal deaths and uh, over 11,000 miscarriages. Um, And so those are the diseases we protect against. Um, Any other thoughts on those diseases, Nathan, and whether or (laughs) not you think... <laughs> Those diseases, in my opinion, are all bad and <laughs> should right. all be immunized against. No, it makes it does make me think about the fact that every one of those diseases has its unique reasons why we why we immunize against it. Right. There are there are diseases for which there are vaccines that are not on the routine schedule because we don't think that they are necessary to give to everybody. But the diseases that we do immunize against are the ones that we think are important for everybody to immunize against. And some of them have higher mortality and cause more deaths, and some of them had higher morbidity and just cause tens and tens of thousands to be sick. But whenever I talk with a family who's hesitant, it's very difficult for me, except for maybe a few unique things like uh, the early uh, whooping cough vaccine and whatnot. It's very difficult for me to prioritize vaccines, any particular vaccines over the others, because they all really do have their role in terms of preventing disease for 
you know, more important for some groups than others, and some ages than other ages, and some of them have, you know, it, it may not be common to catch when you're a baby, but if you do, it's so devastating uh, uh, compared to other diseases that they're all extremely important, and it's difficult to, to do any kind of, it, it puts the doctor in a very difficult position to try to prioritize for a family who doesn't want to get their shots on schedule. Right. So that brings us to our first parent, Genevieve Holmes. And uh, Genevieve, of course, has a story about one of the diseases I didn't mention, which is rotavirus. Um, and of course, the, the incidence of rotavirus has gone down a lot since the vaccine. Um, but Nathan, can you, before we have Genevieve talk, just fill us in on sort of the history of the rotavirus vaccine, because it has some holes in it. Sure. Um, so rotavirus is a gastrointestinal illness. It's what you might call a stomach flu, though we pediatricians hate the term flu in reference to anything besides respiratory influenza. Um, and so a stomach bug, but it's it's vomiting and diarrhea. And it can be severe. Uh, in developed nations uh, like the United States, the, the mortality, the death rate is pretty low because really the treatment is hydration and supportive care for the most part. Um, it, but it did kill um, somewhere around 40 to 60 uh, people in the United States a year prior to widespread use of the vaccine. But the vaccine does have this history in which in the late 90s, uh, a vaccine called uh, RotaShield was released, and it, it, the story of RotaShield, man, I, it, I I do lectures in which I speak for about 15 minutes or more on the story of RotaShield, um, so I'm not going to be able to do it justice today. But yeah. it is a look at how well studied vaccinations are after they come to market. So this vaccine was released. Uh, it passed its its clinical trials. It got its FDA approval. Uh, but after being released and then monitored uh, and looking for reports to the vaccine adverse event reporting system, um, there were reports of a condition called innocenception uh, that were happening more frequently than would be statistically expected to be reported to that system. And it was enough uh, of, a, of a signal to instigate uh, a study, a CDC study, that uses something called the Vaccine Safety Data Link to try to figure out, because as we all know, VAERS reports, uh, Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System reports, do not indicate causation in any, any way, no matter how many reports there are of something, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's, that it's causative because you don't have any kind of control group to compare it to. Uh, what they then do is when there's a signal like that, they do a vaccine safety data link study where they look at millions of patients. They can look at all these networked computerized HMO records and whatnot um, and try to figure out causation. They did that and found that there was somewhere around a 1 in 10,000 increased risk of this condition called innocenception. Innocenception is where the intestine uh, gets, uh, it kind of squeezes itself. It can be serious, though it's relatively easy to treat uh, in, in, in developed nations. Uh, and, and so it has a, a relatively low uh, good outcome if it's treated. Um, but because of that risk, that vaccine was pulled off the market. And so it was a little bit of time. And that happened within a little bit over a year's time it was on the market in the late, uh, like, I want to say 99 to 2000. I could be off a little bit. Right. On my no, that's right. Uh, so that's the, the upshot. And then it was some years before our modern uh, uh, in a, um, sorry, rotavirus vaccines, which did not have that level of risk, uh, were uh, were came out, and those are the ones that we use today. That's right. the that's the upshot. It's I interesting in that we can talk about the relative risk of that actual vaccine and whether or not it should be pulled. I, I think I can talk about that a little bit maybe after Genevieve gives her story because it's pretty relevant. Right. Well, but it was in that hole between 2000 when RotaShield was pulled and 2006 when our latest rotavirus vaccines were put on the market that um, Genevieve had a child who contracted rotavirus. And so Genevieve, um, can you tell us about uh, what it was like? So when my son first became ill, um, I knew exactly what it was because I'm one of a large number of kids and when you have a large number of kids, you're going to see rotavirus. Right, so I knew what it was when he was sick. 
Um, it has a very distinctive smell when someone has rotavirus and the kids all look similarly miserable. And my son was just absolutely miserable. The mental image that I have of rotavirus is my son, um, he was just under two and he was so tired and he was crying because he was miserable and he was just in his diaper and trying to keep up with the diaper changes was so hard because they're just dehydrating so fast. And on the flip side, we were actually lucky because we were able to keep up with the dehydration. When you're talking about that severe level of diarrhea for that long, it's hard to keep up with it. Um, but we were able to keep up with it, but that isn't always the case. Um, I actually had a younger sibling who was actually a little bit under a year old, and we weren't able to keep up with the dehydration for him so we wound up in the ER and he needed an IV for a while because he just was so sick it's a miserable disease and it's scary when you're the parent looking at a child who is so not how they normally act who is so miserable and all you can do is give them fluids and hope that they stay in and hope that you're staying ahead of it because it's just so miserable uh, I was a resident uh, from 2003 to 2006, so kind of uh, at least beginning my residency in that gap where there wasn't a rotavirus vaccine, and so I would see the kids. I mean, rotavirus uh, dehydration was an extremely common uh, reason for admission on the floor, and that smell would kind of permeate a corner of the floor. It's it's uh, not something you'll forget, but we would definitely see that, you know, it, it was just kind of, a, oh, yep, rotavirus is upon us, and we were admitting kids for dehydration. Um, and sometimes it would be so severe that it would cause seizures um, in certain individuals as well. Oh, wow. uh, yeah. So yeah, you can see all you can see the range in terms of you know how bad kids get it in terms of if they can keep up with hydration at home, great. But it, not everybody can. You're absolutely right about that. Right. So Genevieve, let me ask you, so you had, you have a, that was your oldest child who had rotavirus, um, as you said, just under two, um, but you've had a, a, a few children since then, and um, they've been able to be vaccinated against rotavirus. So what was that like, going into your doctor and discovering that you were not going to have to live through rotavirus again? Oh my gosh. The, <laughs> the relief is unspeakable when you're talking about that, because when you're taking care of a kid who has rotavirus, at least when I was taking care of my son, and this was like 2003, 2004, it's, you don't really have a choice about it when there's no vaccine. You, you can try to like feed them all of the right things. You can practice good hygiene and hand washing and try to limit exposure to other people who are sick, but you don't really have a choice if there's no vaccine. Um, I mean, when it, when my little brother was sick, it was something that my parents didn't have a choice about either because that was 97, 98 maybe. Um, I mean, it was just incredible when the vaccine became available and we jumped for it. Being able to prevent death from vaccine-preventable diseases is really important, but it's such a Im tremendous improvement in the quality of life. I mean, you might think diarrhea isn't so bad, this vaccine seems optional, but when you think of it, is there really any child whose life is enriched by having another instance of diarrhea, particularly something this miserable? Yeah. I mean, is there any other scenario in which you would say, nah, it's totally fine for my child, my baby who can't understand, or my toddler, or I mean, God forbid, my potty training age child to be having days of diarrhea because rotavirus probably won't kill you. I mean, that's not really the standard of parenting that I want to live up to, you know? You'll be miserable, but you probably won't die. And I'm okay with that because you'll only be miserable. And looking at the, so, you know, your baby who, who got rotavirus, uh, contracted rotavirus during this window in which there was no vaccine available. Um, and looking back on the stats, when I see that gap, I think, man, what if 
that vaccine had stayed on the market until a new one had been available. Was that the right decision? Uh, they, they withdrew the first vaccine out of an abundance of caution for a uh, adverse uh, uh, event that was relatively rare and relatively low danger, the, the interception. Uh, and it was a lot of public perception uh, in terms of we know, you know, people don't view rotavirus as very dangerous. And to be fair, you know, 40 to 60 deaths a year, not to minimize any death, but that's not, you know, the same level as other diseases that we immunize against. There was a lot of morbidity and tens of thousands of hospitalizations per year. But the public perception of this vaccine, uh, of this disease, was such that they went ahead and pulled that vaccine that could have been on the market and prevented your child's case of, 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 of rotavirus as well as saved lives in that intervening five or so years. Uh, and, and so I think that it's an interesting uh, to think about, number one, is that, was that the right decision? Should we be making more science-based decisions rather than perception-based uh, decisions, but also to say, well, wow, how quickly do they pull a vaccine? Y even something like that, that could have, you know, the, the, the risks were still outweighed by the benefits in that situation, almost certainly, but they pull it anyway out of an abundance of caution. If we're pulling a vaccine for that level of low risk, um, it doesn't give much of an argument to those who think that there is some bizarre underlying problem with vaccines, but we're keeping them on the market because we, you know, because of big pharma, because of, of uh, I don't know, nobody's looking at the evidence. Yeah, I've actually been able to have that discussion with a few of my friends because, I mean, it would have been really nice if they had kept Rotashield on the market. But gosh, it's helpful when I can say to someone who's vaccine hesitant, do you understand that actually there was a vaccine where they identified a problem that was so rare that it was one in 10,000? And that was enough. That was severe enough to get a vaccine pulled. So if that's enough to throw out so much time, so much money, so much research over a one in 10,000 risk, then... I'm not sure how you reconcile the idea that there are all of these diseases that are more dangerous than a one in 10,000 risk and that people are just ignoring that risk somehow. One of the neat little pearls in that is that the vaccine safety data link study that I talked about that had that basically got it found the problem, it identified the issue, the interception, basically got that vaccine pulled off the market. That team that did that study, um, the majority of those members then went on to do other CDC um, studies, including one of the major studies looking at MMR and autism and finding no link in that situation. So uh, this is another one of those uh, situations where it's kind of speaks against the anti-vaccine narrative of, oh, sure, we, nobody can actually study these vaccines because they get blacklisted if they find something. No, this team essentially got rewarded for finding for a significant finding for doing their job well and got more grants more work uh and and went on to do another study and it's very difficult to say well they they were corrupt and 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 they 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 you know faked that study on mmr and autism when clearly they did, they weren't doing that when they were looking at innocenception and rotavirus that's a really great point. Um, and, and, you know, the other thing I, I think about, too, is when people talk about the risks of rotavirus and we're looking at, you know, 40 to 60 kids, what, you know, maybe we should pull this vaccine or maybe I'll skip this vaccine or, or you know, whatever time or whenever we're talking about this. Um, the thing that people miss is that kids kids got hospitalized uh, and, and having a child in the hospital is zero amounts of fun. There's n never anything good that happens when your child's in a hospital other than usually, you know, they have really wonderful people who work there, but you'd probably rather be at home. And then on, on top of that, though, you know, having a child who has diarrhea for almost two weeks and changing, you know, I don't know how many diapers you had to change, but, you know, you can have up to 10 episodes of diarrhea a day and, and that's still a case you can keep at home. Um, that that upend, upends your life and that's not it's not good. It's there's a lot of dangers about that. And, you know, I don't know. What do you think, Genevieve? Was that was that at a good time for you? Oh, my gosh. 
Well, I mean, in some ways we were lucky because I would have felt so much worse if this was a kid who had just finished potty training. Because then you're looking at this age where they're so proud of themselves. They're big boys. They're big girls. They can use the toilet. And then rotavirus. And then they're having accidents. And you're not just talking about the misery of being sick. That's not good psychologically for a kid who was just potty trained, was proud of themselves, and now they're having accidents and they feel miserable. And it's just over a disease that's optional. That's what I keep coming back to. There is no one whose life is better because they got sick. There is no child who thinks, wow, I wish I had had more diarrhea. There is no child who wishes that their life was enhanced in that way. There's no, and we're talking about such little kids. It's just, I don't understand it. I mean, it seems optional, but oh my gosh, when you have the option to keep your child from being miserable and to avoid all of that, and not for anything, but we were college students, so trying to take classes with a kid who's sick, trying to figure out, okay, who's going to class today and who's not, um, these are. it would have been such a blessing to not have to deal with that over something preventable. The one of the things that's worth bringing up about this vaccine is it's one of the ones that you actually age out of. So it's only for infants. Mostly, my understanding is this is basically cost efficacy. It's not that you can't. It's not that the vaccine wouldn't work in the upper age groups. It's just that the kids who are hospitalized and that have the largest chance of a bad outcome, including death, are going to be your youngest infants. So this vaccine is given at generally at two, four, and six months of age. You 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 don't give any doses after age eight months if I remember the guidelines correctly um, because of, of that factor so it, and it, it you know it can last I don't know that there's great stats on exactly how long the vaccine lasts it certainly protects you during the years that you're most vulnerable um, but it is something that is a bad idea to wait on because there just comes a point where you can't get immunized uh, by the guidelines uh, against this disease Right. And the great thing about this vaccine is that if you are needle phobic, hey, it's an oral vaccine. It's yeah. one less poke. Mm -hmm. So it's a really exciting vaccine. In my homeschooling group, we do have a child who's immunosuppressed. Um, he received an, um, a liver transplant when he was just under a year old. And in a lot of these homeschooling groups, a lot of people are not vaccinating, especially for the vaccines that seem sort of optional. And unfortunately, rotavirus falls into that category. And I, I always worry about that kid because it's it's such a common disease to pass around. It's really easy to pass around. And he's in a group where these things go around. Um, I mean, it's he can't have the rotavirus vaccine. Um because he was immunosuppressed and he has siblings who uh. could contract this as well. And there are so many children that are not protected here. And I worry about him because he's at risk. He can't fight this stuff off. And it would be terrible for this child to be hospitalized or to have something really serious happen to him because of another parent deciding, it's no big deal. It's just diarrhea. Yeah, that's pretty much why we're here, to keep yep. these kids protected. Right. And, you know, that's one of the things that um, we need to always remember is that we're vaccinating our children to protect them, but also to protect their peers. So... Well, I want to thank you for joining us today, Genevieve, um, and sharing that story about a disease that I hope that people having babies today never have to live through. So thank you so much. Amen, and thank you so much for having me. Thank you. So uh, Nathan had to step away for a moment, but I am joined now by Emily Stevenson, who is going to tell me a little bit about her baby's journey through pertussis. So pertussis is the disease that we prevent with the DTAP vaccine, which is diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. 
um, in the first few months of life, and then uh, then children get a booster at age 11 through 12 with the Tdap. Um, and um, so Everly, your baby, um, was how old when she came down with pertussis? She was about five weeks old. Five weeks old. So she was mm-hmm. very little, yeah. and it would have been well before her right. very first vaccine, um, and definitely um, the most dangerous time to get pertussis. Right. So there, there are three stages of pertussis. So I just want to walk through um, what happened in each of these stages. So the first stage is one to two weeks long, mm-hmm. and um, it's basically a mild cough, mm-hmm. a low-grade fever, and a runny nose. So what did you notice mm-hmm. in that time? What do you remember about that time with the baby? Well, for the first time, um, she was born healthy, you know, typical, um, you know, feeding, sleeping, very healthy baby. Um, And about, oh gosh, when she was about four weeks old, um, we started noticing kind of a persistent low-grade fever, um, a really mild cough, runny nose, and I thought, oh gosh, our baby has a cold. But there was always just this feeling that it was something more, um, just because it wasn't going away. Um, she started to spit up every time she would eat, and that really wasn't typical for her first, you know, weeks of life. And so, right. um, we just started to watch her really closely, and there just, there just seemed to be a change. Um, she just wasn't as alert, and you could just tell she wasn't feeling well. Um, what was really the scariest um, thing that happened during that stage before we brought her, before she was sick enough to go into the to the doctor, um, my mom was babysitting her, and she was in a baby chair, and it was just my mom and the baby. Um, so she was watching her really close, and all of a sudden she's noticed that she had stopped breathing. And, you know, my mom didn't know what to do, and she said it was probably about 30 seconds total. Um, but that was just... You know, she she just was totally in shock that all of a sudden um, she had just stopped breathing, and so she she ran into the kitchen and grabbed some a, a cup of water and kind of sprinkled some water oh. on her. She had no idea what else to do in that moment, and then she, you know, um, she coughed and she kind of came back too. But it was at that point that um, we just knew, okay, something is. It, this isn't just a cold, even though it's still just a really low grade fever and it's still, you know, clear secretions and that there, there's just something else going on. And so that's when, um, we brought her into, um, her primary doctor at children's clinic in St. Paul and they did the test and, and it was confirmed that she had, um, pertussis. So that's uh, another symptom in babies during that first uh, one to two weeks is apnea, um, pauses in breathing, uh, which is terrifying in and of itself, but it's not, it's not the worst um, that pertussis does because then um, for the next, you know, six to ten weeks, uh, which is, I, you know, I can't even imagine a baby, a five-week-old baby, it's more than her whole life. Um, it it gets worse, um, and and what you know what pertussis does. Um, I'm sure that your doctor explained this to you. Is pertussis is a bacteria that sort of attaches itself. Um, it gives off little toxins and attaches itself to the the cilia, the hair like uh, parts of the upper respiratory system. Um, and then the, you know the the toxins that are released uh, damage those the the airways swell and they damage the that hair-like, that those cilia that kind of bring in air to our bodies. Um, and so that's when, you know, when that starts happening, when the the toxins are actually coming through, that's when uh, pertussis can get very bad for an, an adult um, or for an older child, but uh, um, frighteningly, frighteningly bad for a baby. So, um, you know, we've got uh, worsening coughing, and vomiting after coughing and, and all sorts of things. So um, during that second phase, what, what happened with the baby then? Well, that day that she had the um, apnea episode, we brought her in to see her primary doctor. They they wanted to do the test right away, and he wasn't comfortable with her going back home um, given the the apnea, and we weren't comfortable. And so he said, okay, let's just stay a night in the, ho- um, in the hospital, and we'll just keep an eye on her and and then if she's you know doesn't have any more of those episodes then you know you can bring her home and we'll kind of see what the results are of the test and anyway um she did they had her on a monitor and she continued to have the apnea episodes 
um, I think it was the next day that they confirmed the test was positive for pertussis, and they said, well, we, we just need to keep her here um, until she kind of gets through. They educated us on what pertussis is and what we can expect. And, you know, really for an infant, they I remember they reiterated to us several times that we just don't know what to expect because it, it could be a couple of days, it could be weeks, it could be, you know, we just, we, we just had no idea um, what to expect. And so they... Um, they they had us in a hospital room for a few weeks, and and just as you said, we we watched her symptoms just ramp up from there, where it became more frequent apnea, where um, you know the coughing would get much worse. Um, you know, I think the scariest thing was as we really got into what they what the doctors had called the peak phase, was that before she would start to cough. Um, they had a specific name for it. They called it the the vagal response that's specific to infants where um, something about when, when the coughing reflex starts to happen, there's a, a natural kind of clamp down in the chest. And so we would, the scariest part of that whole experience was watching her heart rate would just drop. Um, and at a few points she, we knew she was asystolic and, you know, we'd see on the monitor and, you know, everything would start going off, and and it was really just that she she just couldn't cough. It was like she was just so tight in her chest, and um, you know, certainly the doctors in the hospital could explain it much better than I can. But just to watch what our baby was going through, and just to watch those, you know, what her heart rate was doing, and um, you know, it was really the only relief that um, she really could get was just to to try to um, suction some of that mucus that was in the back of her throat because that would trigger mm-hmm. her to cough and then she would be able to pull herself out of it. She would kind of unclamp from that, you know, whatever was going on in her chest and she, then she could cough and then she could breathe. And I just watched this happen so many times. I think it was about eight times a day where an episode would happen when we were um, in the hospital, eventually moved into the ICU where we would just watch, you know, the the, um, the heart rate monitor would go off, and so you know, a nurse or two nurses would run in, and then a doctor would come in, and, and it would be really tense until she would start to cough, and we would just watch her heart rate come back up, and it was like the whole room would just then breathe this collective sigh of, okay, <laughs> because there was just, I just, I remember just feeling so powerless for her in that moment. Yeah, I, and it, and what what were the typical treatments that doctors, you know, that the doctors were doing with her? What sort of, um, you know, wh- what's even available as a, a pertussis treatment um, for a, a, such a newborn baby? Uh, well, this was, you know, in 2011. I'm not sure what would be now, but she was on, um, right away when her test was positive, she was on an antibiotic. Everyone in our family who, you know, we had been around, you know, was then we all were on an antibiotic. Um, I think she did a few courses of that. And, you know, even the doctor said, we're not sure how effective that even is, but it's just for good measure. Um, so she, so she did the antibiotic and again, a few rounds that was specific for pertussis. I'm not, and they again, they kind of explained to us that um, there really isn't a direct treatment for pertussis, so it was just something right. that could help, something on board in her system that could help. Um, and then she was on a few different steroids to help strengthen her lungs and to help um, just kind of build up what the, the defenses she had to fight, to you know, to fight it off. Right. And one of the things I always try to emphasize to parents is that um, having a child in a hospital is is awful, uh, and and it's I, I think that it is um, uh, something terrible that the majority of parents don't get to experience, and, and that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know what what were some of the things about being in the hospital for her that really stick in your memory as things that you wish other parents knew? Um, gosh, you know, I think, um, I mean, aside from, you know, just the discomfort and the challenge with, you know, at the time we had one older daughter and so that was really tricky managing, 
getting her to and from school, my husband from work. Um, I was able to take time off and to, to be with her and her, you know, to be with the baby. And, and I think just, you know, as I, as I really go back and think about it, just the stress that's on everybody relative to your, um, to when you're, infant is in such a helpless situation that there there was nothing we could do aside from just to be there with her to hold her as often as we could um you know I, I found it comforting for myself um to be able to nurse her as often as I could I I, yeah. I really couldn't for um a few weeks to when she was in the peak phase as she was as she had a um a tube um for feeding um, but I think just generally the stress involved with the whole thing, it was, it just felt like, my goodness, you know, here we are kind of in this, you know, in these first few precious weeks of her life and we're watching her helplessly try to fight, try to fight against something that, you know, the best way I can explain it was just that, you know, her little body just was not prepared to fight. Right. There was just nothing anybody, and even the doctors, the you know, we, we had such faith in her medical staff. We knew everyone was so highly skilled and knew what they were doing and were giving her the best treatment they possibly could. But it was just one of those situations where they just, they, they had no idea what to predict. There was no way to know when she had reached the peak of the peak phase, what we could expect in terms of how long we would be staying and how long we would be staying in the ICU. And it was just... I just think that feeling of helplessness and, and just the stress on everybody was, um, you, I, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. <laughs> Absolutely not. And I, I think, you know, there's something too about, um, you know, you want to help your, your child as much as you can. And when you have a newborn baby, you know, you really expect to be able to, to comfort them and, and take care of them as best as you're able and to be powerless and to be, you know, have your life sort of taken over by the hospital system, mm -hmm. um, yeah. which is, you know, in, in one thing, wonderful that that mm -hmm. exists. Mm -hmm. But on the other part, that's not, that's no way to start a life. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very difficult. And, you know, I, I'm so grateful for you um, that you, that you are sharing that experience with everyone so willingly. Um, so when, when did your baby start turning the corner when did you know okay we're gonna be, she's gonna be okay we're gonna get out of the hospital it's gonna be all right well I remember when she was at her peak during that peak phase it was um we would note the times that she had um where she she couldn't cough she was having that clamp down experience in her chest those were we would call those episodes and she was having I think it was around eight a day um and that's where the doctors were really uncomfortable thinking we just we can't make any predictions about how long you're going to be here it just has to be less and so then after a week or so it became six and then it was five and then they were saying okay once she has had about two or three of those episodes a day we know that she is on you know that she's passed through the peak phase and she can go home and of course she went home on a on a heart rate monitor and she was on that heart monitor until she was six months old and um, and she continued to have episodes at home, but nothing that was like we what we saw in the hospital. And and even her, you know, her heart rate would dip down into you know twenty beats per minute or something um, during that during that phase, which is you know really low for an infant. Um, but still, you know, being at home. She was just able to pull, you know, we didn't have the means to, you know, trigger her to cough by putting a, um, you know, a tube in her nose or in her throat or anything. We just would hold her and we would just watch her fight through that. And, and she was able to do that at home. And after, you know, she coughed well beyond, oh gosh, she probably coughed until she was eight months old. And then by the time she was a year old, it was... You know, she's she's fully recovered. She still has a rasp in her voice, and um, her doctor thinks that's probably because of the tubes that were kind of constantly going down her throat. Right, um, yeah. That's become a very endearing quality of hers. So, oh. <laughs> so she spent pretty much her entire first year of life fighting off pertussis and its effects. I'd say so, yeah. Yeah. So the third stage, you know, for an adult is supposed to last two to three weeks. So it's called the 100 day cough. Um, but, but, you know, when a, a child is younger, um, 
lasts longer and that's you know for for Everly it was the one year cough which is mm-hmm. terrible so in 2011 something that's different from you know between then and now is that in 2011 when you were pregnant and you went into your obstetrician's office or your midwife's office um you know you might hear about pertussis in the background but not think about it um in 2012 um by the time everly was past pertussis uh there was a new recommendation that all women um get a tdap a pertussis vaccine in every third trimester of pregnancy so every pregnancy in the third trimester get a tdap Uh, And you have had a couple of babies since then. So I'm wondering if you can share um, how hard it was for your doctor to talk you into getting a TDAP. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, not hard at all. (laughs) I was a very easy sell on that. Yeah, I remember um, we we were pregnant again. We had a... um, in in 2000, let's see, in 2013, our son was born in March of 2014. And so... Yeah, it was, I think, probably sometime in January where um, our doctor, who didn't know about um, what I really had been through, started to explain how dangerous pertussis can be in infants and that this is the recommendation. (laughs) I was just like, you're fine. Just that sounds great. I I totally understand what this is about. (laughs) And so it was, you know, and and then that was the same again with um, last year when our, when our, um, our other baby was born. So... And so, and then they're protected. I mean, that's um, the, you know, that's, that's got to be such a comforting feeling to know that there's something you can do because, you know, had you had babies without that protection, how nervous would you have been? Oh, I think we were still quite nervous parents sure. <laughs> with our babies and yeah, after that experience and, but no, absolutely. I'm so glad that, yeah, that that's come to be. Absolutely. So, Emily, I really want to thank you so very much for sharing Everly's story with everybody. I know you've shared it a number of times in the Twin Cities local media, and it's such an important story. And I think that uh, parents really need to hear exactly what that's like um, living through that. So thank you so much. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So I have Nathan back um, now that Emily's gone and uh, we're going to just chat a little bit and then we'll say goodbye to everybody. But before we go, here's the most important question. The p- question that parents probably ask you in the exam room, the question that you know people wrestle with sometimes when they are unsure. And that's which of those vaccines in the first two year, you know, is the most important one? As a pediatrician, I would say... Yes. All of them are the most important. They're all extremely important to get on time. And I ask that parents don't try to have your pediatrician practice substandard medical care by not giving vaccines on time when they're supposed to be given. Because any one of those vaccines can save your child's life or keep your child out of the hospital. Right. And, you know, as far as, you know, you're a funny guy and you're kind of charming. Um <laughs> You probably like have all sorts of interesting, you know, Star Wars things in your office. I do. Um, so parents probably might be like, you know, if we spread out these shots, we can mm-hmm. go visit Doctor Boonstra more. Oh yeah, yeah, sure. I get that all the time, especially from the kids. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can <laughs> we can we get shots more often? Um, is that a good idea or? The problem you run into with that is not only are you spacing out uh, the the amount of time that a child could catch that disease. So if you go in at two months and you get one shot and then you go in a few weeks later and get another shot, that three weeks in between there is the opportunity that your child could catch meningitis or catch uh, the, the bacteria that causes uh, one of that we immunize against that could cause a pneumonia or meningitis or could cause uh, or could catch whooping cough or something like that. Um, but even if you do those relatively close together and they're still kind of within the the time period in which we recommend them, you're still inflicting a fair amount of pain. Yeah. Uh, there's there are studies that look at this. They look at the cortisol response in kids who get immunizations, and whether you get one shot or two or you know multiple shots doesn't really matter. They get the same kind of the the if we measure pain in terms of cortisol release. 
which is kind of like stress hormone, um, the, the, it doesn't really matter. But if you're doing them individually and you're separating them, then those kids are getting the stress, this pain, multiple times. And that's far more stressful. So there's not a lot of reason. It's, it's really to your, your child's benefit to get your, shot, get your child's shots on time. It's also the way that the vaccine schedule is best studied. All of these studies that look when a new vaccine is added to the schedule, they study it uh, alongside the vaccines that are recommended with that vaccine. Right. So that's the science that's been done to look and see if it's safe and effective. Uh, and so if you want to go with the best evidence as to what's safest and most effective, get the vaccines on time uh, together. Fabulous. So our take-home messages for National Infant Immunization Week are get vaccinated. Get vaccinated on time. Tell mm-hmm. people you're vaccinated. Tweet with the IVAX to protect hashtag. Um, and read um, blog posts this week. <laughs> and don't Great argue advice. and don't argue with um, William Shatner. <laughs> don't just leave him alone. Let leave him, him alone. Let him shout at cloud. <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's all we have for today. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. And thank you to Emily and to Genevieve for um, being on our podcast. Um, and we hope to that you are subscribed to us on iTunes. If you're not, subscribe at iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher. And you can also visit us at voicesforvaccines.org. And you can find our podcast at the slash podcast hashtag. So my name is Karen Ernst, and I am the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Nathan Boonstra. I'm a general pediatrician at Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. And you can find me on Twitter. My handle is PedsGeekMD. You can find me on Facebook. You can also find my blog. It's PedsGeekMD.com. And thank you for listening. Thank you so much. Goodbye now. Bye-bye. Amenlos, protejanlos, vacunenlos. Amenlos, protejanlos, vacunenlos. Amigos, quiero que escuchen esto que es muy importante. Aunque disculpen la voz de este humilde cantante, estamos inaugurando la semana que realiza en todas estas agencias de la salud fronteriza esta salud fronteriza es a nivel estatal pero la gran Esto siempre se realiza de forma internacional. México, Estados Unidos, por línea binacional. Nuevo México, Chihuahua, la Alta y Baja California. Vacunar
de una y otra enfermedad contra toda enfermedad no existe mejor opción la mayor defensa es siempre la inmunización aquí termina el corrido por favor no hay que olvidar que a todos esos pequeños hoy los deben vacunar amenlos, protejanlos, vacunenlos amenlos, protejanlos, vacunenlos